Oh, good morning again. Um, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know that we're going through a, a series uh, in a book in the, in the New Testament part of the Bible called Philippians. I'd just like to just read our passage for this morning uh, before we get into it. It's on page 1180, 1180, and uh, it's chapter 3 of Philippians, verses 1 to 16. And uh, do kind of feel free to keep it open in front of you afterwards as we work through. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Let's pray again briefly. Father, thank you that this is your word to us. And I pray that you would help us to hear what your spirit says to us as a church this morning and uh, as individuals too. Please help us to hear your message to us. Amen. Well, here we go then. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. As we've seen again and again in our series in Philippians so far, joy is the heartbeat of this letter. Specifically, joy in the Lord Jesus. Right the way through, Paul is banging on about having joy in Jesus. And so he continues here in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and again. Even Paul acknowledges that he's writing the same things again. Why? 
I think he was onto something. I think he was onto something. And that's not surprising if God was guiding him to write this letter. The question is, how easy do you find it to have joy in Jesus? How easy do you find it to maintain joy in Jesus? Really? Many of us, if we're being honest, will admit that we find it hard to have joy in Jesus. That uh, we struggle to live in a constant state of rejoicing in the Lord. Maybe that's because the circumstances of our lives feel a bit rubbish. And sometimes it's hard to rejoice in the Lord if you feel like he's dealt you a duff hand. Maybe life is okay, but joy is something that leaks out of us. We can be like spiritual sieves. We struggle to keep joy uh, in our hearts. Or maybe uh, the root of joylessness is simply because we know we've turned away from the Lord, perhaps knowingly, perhaps unintentionally. King David, the ancient king of the Jewish nation, a man who lived uh, as close to, in a close relationship with God as any human, he knew the joy-killing effect of sin in his personal life. Some of us will be familiar with David's prayer, recorded in Psalm 51, after he committed adultery and then had the woman's husband murdered to, to try and cover up for the mess that he'd got himself into. And part of that prayer, he prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation, of your salvation. Sin can have a joy-killing effect. Or maybe you're just visiting this morning, uh, or you're new here, and uh, you haven't yet begun a personal relationship with Jesus, and you're not familiar at all uh, with this weird idea of rejoicing in the Lord. Well, God knows our weakness. He knows we find it hard to live in this state of rejoicing in Jesus. And I think that's why Paul is led to write the same things again and again. And not only that, but to give us three steps to rejoicing in the Lord. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Three steps to rejoicing in the Lord. And uh, I frame these as diagnostic questions. Um, that's perhaps because I'm an engineer at heart. Uh, so the first question, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in, verses 2 to 7? Uh, not that I watched The X Factor, <laughs> but uh, apparently, um, uh, no, uh, they kind of uh, often, kind of when they introduce a, a famous star coming on, there's these videos they play and they say how amazing uh, this person is, all their achievements. I tried to find one for you and I guess copyright laws and that, I couldn't find one. Um, uh, the video quality wasn't very good. But uh, this was the intro to Adele, who uh, most people would have heard of if you haven't. She's a rather famous singer um, who performed on the X Factor final this year. And uh, so Adele comes on, there's Adele, and she comes on and they kind of play the video and they kind of saying, you know, she's the biggest selling album this century, number one in 109 countries, one Oscar, four Brit Awards, seven Grammy Awards, fastest selling download ever. A great British icon, Adele. I won't try and do the guy's voice. But um, we could say, musically speaking, Adele has a great deal of reason to put confidence in the flesh. That is, she can trust in her proven musical prestige. And that works when it comes to getting a gig on the X Factor final or a sellout tour anywhere in the world, probably. But when it comes to our standing before God, these verses give us a warning not to put a trust in conf our confidence in the flesh. A strong warning not to put our confidence in the flesh, in our heritage or our achievements, our performance. 
The church to whom Paul was writing faced a real danger from a certain group of false teachers who required people to do certain things in order to earn their salvation. But as we shall see a bit later, the salvation that Jesus offers is free. We say, by grace alone, you can't earn it. There's nothing any of us can do to deserve it. It depends on God's goodness expressed to us in Christ Jesus, his unearned, undeserved favor, grace. But this group of false teachers wanted to add things that people had to do, including the act of circumcision, which is not a particularly pleasant thing to talk about, especially for a man. Um, And I should say no more that it requires cutting off a piece of skin, which is why Paul describes them as uh, mutilators of the flesh. The physical act of circumcision did used to function as a sign that you belonged to the community of God's people, the community who he had made special promises to. But the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah in human history, particularly in his death and resurrection, changed everything, fulfilled everything, including the need for males to be marked by this sign. So Paul now uses the term circumcision metaphorically. When he says, we who are the circumcision, he's referring not to people who bear the physical sign, but to those who belong to God's new covenant community, that new community based on special promises that God has made to his people. So now we've got a bit of background knowledge. Let's read again verses 2 to 7. Watch out for those dogs. Those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So let's just uh, stretch our imagination for a moment and uh, pretend that Paul got invited uh, to preach on the X Factor final. And uh, yeah, it could happen. Uh, no, it couldn't actually. But um, he'd have uh, just as impressive an intro as Adele, wouldn't he? As far as Jewish religious heritage goes, he's got it all. But his point is that we can't put confidence in those things. It counts for nothing. God is not impressed. I doubt many of us have faced pressure from anyone to be circumcised. Uh, to add to our salvation in that particular way. I doubt many of us could list off a, a religious heritage like that of Paul's. And yet, how many of us in our own way attempted to put confidence in the flesh? Uh, I've used this um, illustration before uh, from a guy called C.J. Mahaney in a book called Living the Cross-Centered Life. I think it's a great way of getting us to think about this. And he asked us to picture two days. Uh, so uh, on the first day, uh, you kind of uh, wake up a bit late. Um, you sleep through your alarm four times, or have many times you set your alarm, um, and uh, you just keep snoozing it. You uh, knock over a glass of water as you do. Uh, you come downstairs, you spill your coffee uh, all over your lap. You have to go and get changed. You're late, you miss the bus, you're rude to someone, uh, whatever it is. You're rude in the lectures, you're grumpy, you're miserable all day. 
and, uh, and you come home and then you have an argument with your cat uh, or, or whoever else it is you, you live with um, and you just thoroughly, it's a bad, bad day. You know those kind of days and uh, you've completely forgot about God. Uh, there was no time in the morning, no time at any other point in the day and you go to bed and you just think, oh, I'm pathetic, aren't I? Is it, what, what kind of, call yourself a Christian. What kind, of, what kind of Christian am I? What kind of person am I? How can God possibly ever love me? And then the next day, though, it's different. Next day, you wake up before the alarm and the sun's kind of beaming in through the window like it is this morning. The sun's beaming in through the window. You kind of wake up and stretch and it's all so wonderful. And you leap out of bed with a spring in your step. I can't wait to get downstairs and, and read my Bible with a lovely cup of tea, which is better than coffee you had the previous day. And, uh, and you get downstairs and you just kind of keep going. You lose yourself. You kind of read a whole book and uh, you really feel God speaking to you. And, and then you kind of still got time to get early out to work. You, you speak to someone on the bus and, and, and you, you tell them about Jesus and how wonderful he is. And they say, can, can you pray for me now? And, uh, and then you start doing a Bible study with them later on that day and you have kind of all these conversations at work it's an amazing day and uh, in the evening everyone everyone's happy and you have a, a great evening you make up with the cat and uh, you go to bed that night and you feel justified you feel i'm this close to god i'm this close to god and you pray that night instead of oh how pathetic i am you pray most merciful and gracious, lovingly, heavenly Father, almighty Lord of heaven and earth. And you kind of begin this great long prayer. And the, the, kind of, the, the question that Haney asked with that is, on which of those two days were you uh, relating properly to God? On which of those two days were you right with God? And, uh, and the problem is, is that we kind of, we get into this thing of putting confidence in our flesh. We think it depends on our performance. Not in the way that uh, perhaps Paul could have done with his heritage, or not in the way that these people who wanted people to be circumcised and add other things were. But we trust in the same way in our performance. On neither of those days can we relate to God based on our performance. We have to put no confidence in the flesh. So do you want to rejoice in the Lord? Well, don't try and rely on your performance. We can't rely on our past performance. We can't rely on our present performance. And we can't rely on our future performance. As an aside, I'm aware that some here this morning are from different religious backgrounds. Some from very religious backgrounds in other cultures. And it's great to welcome you and have you with us. But this passage serves as a warning to you as well, to all of us. Religious practice, religious observance is not enough. We can't put our confidence in our observance of religious rituals or customs or whatever. We can't put our confidence in what we do. There's another kind of um, picture which someone has used that kind of describes religion as, as kind of like this door. So this door is getting uh, through to God. And uh, pretty much every religion is like this path leading up to this door. You've got to do all this stuff so that you can get through this door into a relationship with God. But the gospel, the salvation that Jesus offers is different to that. The path is through the door, outside of the door. Because all other religions says, do. This is what you've got to do to get to God. But Jesus says, it's done. 
It's done. He's already brought us through into his salvation. Based not on what we do, but on what he has done. And so we can enjoy knowing him through the door, as it were. Jesus says, done, not do. Trust only in Jesus. That's our first step to maintaining joy in Jesus. We've seen that we can't put our confidence in the flesh. Our second question is, what are you treasuring? Verses 8 to 11, what are you treasuring? We've seen that we can't put our confidence in the flesh. I've hinted that the salvation which Jesus offers, accomplishes and offers, relies on Jesus and what he has done. And this is made more explicit in this next section where Paul expands on a major key word, the word righteousness. And this is a really important word to understand. So let's uh, think about it for a couple of minutes. First of all, what Paul does not mean by righteousness is stuck-up people who think that they're better than anyone else. Perhaps sometimes, people sometimes refer to such people as self-righteous. This is exactly the opposite to the righteousness that Paul is teaching about. As he's already been emphasizing, he does not put any confidence in the flesh. And so again here, he emphasizes explicitly that he does not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. By which he means he can't make himself righteous by his own obedience to God's law. Well, what is this righteousness then? Essentially, it's about a right standing before God. A truly righteous person is able to appear before God without guilt, without shame, without facing God's anger, without being condemned. A truly righteous person is welcomed into God's presence, declared right, declared just by God. And the biggest problem the whole of humanity faces is that we don't have this righteousness and we cannot earn it or work up to it. And yet Paul can say that he's righteous. How? Please uh, take a look with me at verse 9. That I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is Paul's gospel. This is the good news, the great news that God, that Paul gave his life to making known. God gives righteousness on the basis of faith in Christ. God gives righteousness on the basis of faith in Christ. Paul's letters are full of this fundamental teaching. God gives righteousness on the basis of faith in Christ. Take a look at it in Romans and Galatians and just read through and just see the importance at this point. That is to say God is pleased. He's delighted to give righteousness to people as a gift on the basis of their faith in Christ. Even though no one can earn or deserve God's righteousness, God delights to declare people righteous who trust in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to take away the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against God and our, our rejection of him. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, in, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, sin is defeated. Its power, its guilt, its stain, it's removed. And the faith that Paul is talking about here is the faith that trusts in this work of Jesus. It's not dumb faith. It's not believing something to be true that we know, in fact, to be false. 
To have faith in Christ is to trust Jesus in, to be who he is, who he said he is, and to trust that his death and his resurrection accomplishes uh, what he says it does. Faith is to believe not just that he died, not just that he died to rescue and restore people. Faith is to believe that he died for me, that he died to rescue and restore me, to make me righteous. Can you say that this morning? If you can say that, then God has given you this righteousness and you have reason to rejoice. Back to the question though, what are you treasuring? What are you treasuring? Knowing that he'd been given this righteousness from God totally transformed how Paul viewed everything else in life. Now read with me from verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. It is crystal clear what Paul is treasuring, isn't it? For Paul, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord was of surpassing worth. It's not particularly casual language, is it? Not the kind of take it or leave it Christianity we might sometimes hear of. There's no pick or mix here, pick and mix. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. That word is a strong word. It can be kind of human excrement or a street garbage, foul-smelling sewage, <clears throat> that I may gain Christ and be found in him. On the one side stands everything this world has to offer. All the possessions, all the privileges, all the positions, all the everything. You could think of this world has to offer. And on the other side stands Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God given through him. And there's no contest between these two, Paul is saying. Jesus and the righteousness that God gives through him is far, far, incomparably, surpassingly better than all this world has to offer. Paul had grasped the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He sought to treasure Jesus above all else. Enough about Paul, though. What about me? What about you? What are you treasuring? Am I treasuring Jesus above all else? When we try and answer questions like this, it can be helpful to ask kind of diagnostic questions that would... Something like, uh, you know, what would my bank statement look like? What would my bank statement indicate? What would my Facebook page indicate? Or my internet search history? Or my diary? Or my calendar? Am I treasuring Jesus above all else? If someone new met me, how long would it take them to see the importance of Jesus to me? How soon would they notice my passion to follow Jesus better? What about my friends and family who do know me? 
What evidence do they see of my treasuring Jesus? What about even in our conversation with each other? How evident is our treasuring of Jesus when we speak to each other? And maybe part of our problem is that we're surrounded by so much else, so much other stuff, so much distraction, so much rubbish in comparison. And uh, it can be a challenge in subtle ways, can't it? I know the temptation I find sometimes, if I've got to, if I've got to buy something, I like to do a bit of good research. Anyone likes to do research? And I could waste so much time making sure I'm getting a good deal, saving a pound perhaps or something. And that time I could have been spending getting to know Jesus better, couldn't I? It's kind of subtle things in our life, not just all the kind of obvious things we might think of. But if we want to know joy in Jesus, if we want to rejoice in the Lord, we need to learn to treasure him above all else. I wonder if it's possible to know joy in Jesus at all if we don't treasure him. Treasure the eternal son who made himself our brother. The son who came from the father to make us sons and daughters. Our great high priest and lamb of God who offers himself for us so that we might receive the righteousness of God. Treasure the firstborn from the dead who's gone to prepare a place for us to bring us home to our father. Treasure the friend of sinners, the prince of peace, the risen Lord, full of grace and truth. How can we expect to do this if we're not feeding ourselves on him? How can I expect to be treasuring Jesus if I'm not often reading about him in scripture, the books that testify about him? I'm so much more likely to treasure Jesus when I'm reminded of his character, his goodness, his compassion to the weak, his justice, his mercy, his love. I'm so much more likely to treasure Jesus when I'm reminded of his nature. God the Son, the eternal Son of the eternal Father. The one by whom and for whom all things were created. The one who holds the supremacy over everything. I'm so much more likely to treasure him when I'm reminded of what he's done for me. And what he continues to do. That he made himself nothing as we saw the other week. Humbled himself to death. Even death on the cross. That he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that he ever lives now to plead for me. I'm so much more likely to treasure Jesus if I'm reading these things about him, filling my mind with them, aren't I? Isn't it obvious? Or, or perhaps using songs, playing songs, listening to songs on a CD player. Or if you're gifted, you can do it yourself or the guitar or whatever, but praying, praising, rejoicing, feeding myself on who he is. So much more likely to be able to rejoice in the Lord if I treasure Jesus. Thirdly, what are you targeting? Verses 12 to 16. Finally, let's ask our third question to help us cultivate or maintain our joy in Jesus. What are you targeting? I'd like to invite you to tune back in now. If you're one of those who heard about Paul treasuring Jesus above all else and felt crushed because you struggled to treasure him over your pet dog or whatever it is. You need to tune back in because I think you'll find this encouraging. You see, even Paul hadn't made it yet. Paul, the great apostle who had known Christ for almost 30 years by the time he wrote this letter. Listen to him, this great founder of the church in a way. Verse 10. 
I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This guy who'd already known Jesus for nearly 30 years, who'd done so much with Jesus, still could say, I want to know Christ. Not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal. I haven't got there yet, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Now this isn't about navel-gazing, staring at ourselves at where we are at the moment. Whether that's staring at ourselves and thinking, my, how far I've come, how spiritual I am. Or whether that's staring at ourselves and thinking, I might as well give up. Poor, wretched sinner, I'm pathetic. That's not what this is about. This is about the attitude of our hearts. Where do we want to be? Where do we want to get to? Where are we targeting? It's about a direction, a trajectory. Am I moving forward? Am I moving closer to my goal? The wrong reaction would be to give up, to stagnate where we are. The point is not a guilt trip. And yet we do need to be challenged. As they say, if you aim at nothing, you're likely to achieve it. But we do so in a relationship based on God's free and lavish grace. Remember, we're already through the door. We're already in that relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. And this is the point. In such a loving relationship, don't we want to grow in that relationship Grow in our knowledge of our Saviour. Know better and better the one through whom we know the Father. Don't we want to grow in that relationship? Rather than be despondent about where I am now, the thrust of this passage is is that I should press on towards the goal. Keep moving forwards. And if this is an area of, of personal struggle for you, then don't struggle alone. Come and talk to someone. Ask someone to pray with you and for you. Ask our prayer team to pray with you this morning. There's no shame for ask, in asking for help in this. And we won't judge you. That would be hypocritical of us. Because we know how far we've got to go ourselves. I wonder if you'd mind putting your hand up if you've known Christ for more than 50 years. I wonder if you'd mind putting your hand up if you've known Christ for more than 50 years. And please keep it up if you don't mind. Just while people have a look around... And see who the people are in this room who've known Christ for more than 50 years. Okay. Now, please keep your hand up if you think you've made it. If you think you know Christ as well as he can be known. If you think you've got no further to grow. What? There's there's no hands left. No hands left up. The rest of us could do well to learn from you. In our journeys, uh, in knowing Christ better. This is what Paul's saying. All of us who are mature should think, should share this driving ambition to know Christ. All of us who are mature should share this attitude of knowing we haven't made it yet. Whilst pressing on, growing. This means that to be mature, we must know our lack of maturity. We humbly realise that we have much further to go. And those of us who've been following Jesus any length of time know this. 
We're familiar with the observation that the longer we go in our discipleship journey, the further we realize we've got to go. The closer we grow in our relationship with God, the more childlike we realize we are. The purer we become in holiness, the more we see our need of our sin to be washed away and, and cleansed. And, uh, and us young'uns look up to our kind of older brothers and sisters in Christ in the church family, and maybe we're awed by their prayerfulness or their holiness as we see it. But they examine their own hearts, and they would tell you, as they just have in that short demonstration, how far they've got to go. This is what maturity in the Christian faith is like. It's not a stage you reach after a set number of years, or a set of home group Bible studies you've led, as if either of those things make you mature. The mature view Paul is talking about here is defined by wanting to know Jesus better and being aware that you've got a way to go. I hope at least some of us are finding this refreshing. Maybe you're conscious of recent failing in your life or you're disappointed with yourself. You feel like you take a step closer in your relationship with God and then you discover a whole load more steps. It's like uh, some of those mountain climbs where you trek up a steep, long path thinking, there's the summit, I can see it. And you get that kind of depressing moment where you get over the edge and the summit's quite a bit further away. If you feel that cycle of growth and disappointment, then be encouraged this morning. That's maturity. You're most likely discovering this mature view. So instead of being knocked down by your disappointment, be refreshed. Be encouraged that God is showing you areas in which you need to grow. And when you've obeyed him in whatever area that is, he'll show you the next one and the next one. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And so this mature view has an ambition to know Christ better and sees that there's still a way to go. Forgetting our past achievements and forgetting our past failures. One thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. But what is the goal? What is the prize? Well, verse 10 would suggest at least it's participating in the resurrection. That is the eternal life which Christ will raise all his followers to on the last day. All who've trusted in him. Paul writes about this event in in another of his letters uh, in Corinthians. He said, listen, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. We will be changed, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that's written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's driving hope. And as we saw earlier in the letter to the Philippians, Paul longed to be with Christ. And at the resurrection, all who've trusted in Jesus, all who've treasured Jesus, will attain their goal of being with him. Sounds simple, maybe. But maybe if it sounds too simple... We're underestimating the joy of that day. We press on for that day. We press on in knowing Jesus better. We do our hard work running, like Lou was um, helping us earlier. 
I'm uh, reminded here of the words of a friend uh, in whose life this attitude is, is, is evident. Uh, she spoke once about the need for a, a daily testimony. She would, uh, she would not want to, anyone to think that she was a special Christian. Uh, she was a mum of teenage kids at the time, a job as a nurse. And her example challenged me and really stuck in my mind. When asked to testify to what God has done in her life, this friend didn't want to have to wind the clock back to 1985 and talk about something God did in a distant past. She wanted to be able to say what God was doing today. Do I have a testimony for today? Do I have a testimony for yesterday, for the last week or the month? What is God doing in my life at the moment? What areas of growth has he been working away at? How am I growing to become more like Jesus? How am I pressing on, straining towards that goal? How am I growing in knowing Christ? As someone else has written, Christians should never be satisfied with yesterday's grace. And if I'm struggling to identify recent growth in my knowledge of Christ, could it be that I need to work harder in pressing on? And please don't think I'm talking to you as as someone who finds this easy. Believe it or not, I think I've found it harder in many ways uh, since leaving engineering and working for a church. This isn't easy. But let's consider how to help each other progress in our joy in the faith. We all need to have this mindset. We all need to live up to what we already know. Uh, You might remember this kind of uh, rope illustration from a few weeks ago. Uh, Get it out once more, get the money's worth. Cost eight quid. Um, And I spent quite a while researching it, actually. (laughs) Um, Far too long. Uh, Imagine this rope goes on forever and ever and ever. Nice long rope. And it's a timeline of your existence. The whole rope is a timeline of your existence. And uh, we saw a few weeks ago this red part here, this tiny part at the beginning is our time here on earth, the timeline of our time here on earth. And hopefully this helps us just to put into context how ridiculous it is, how silly it is, when we get so absorbed with this tiny little bit, when we get so distracted by the things in this tiny little bit, when we treasure most the parts in this tiny little bit of our red existence. Paul's saying, I want to know Christ, and I'm going to know him for all eternity, and I'm going to treasure him for all eternity. And he wants to kind of begin that journey now. Begin that journey now, trusting in Christ, treasuring Christ, and looking forward, pressing on to that time where he'll know him fully and be fully known and enjoy eternity with him, being with Christ. So, what's uh, what's your life orientation? you pursuing Jesus? What are you targeting? I think that might help you to rejoice in the Lord if we think about that question. So then we'll be able to rejoice in the one who's our righteousness, the one who we treasure above all else, the one who we're pressing on to know better and better. Rejoice in the Lord. We're going to um, sing a song now if the band uh, has come up, which is written based on this passage. And uh, yeah, if you can't sing these words, do think about them um, rather than just sing along. But, or sing them as a desire, sing them as an aspiration.